It is uh, amazing to have you here. The weather a little refreshing today, anyone? It was amazing to walk outside and not instantly perspirate. Is that the right? Pers- perspire. Perspire. I want to welcome uh, the, the Lindenwood students and the college students back here. Can we just give it up for them? It's great to have them back. Excited. Hope you had an incredible summer. Uh, tonight is a cool opportunity that we have. Here's the situation. Um, we just finished uh, First Peter, uh, studying 10 months in it, and, uh, which gives me an opportunity to share why we do that. Um, we've, we're five years old, Matthias. In fact, this Sunday at the Columns at 1030, we'll be celebrating our fifth birthday as a church. Pretty cool. Give it up for that, right? Um, we will be uh, celebrating, worship, eating, and revealing the new Matthias logo, which you'll see on Sunday if you come. It's pretty incredible. We're all going to get matching tats, so uh, feel free to come. Uh, there's going to be a tat artist there just doing it on site, so it should be a lot of fun. Um, but we, uh, we, we've taught uh, all of four books in our five years. Uh, we spent 18 months in Genesis, another two years in the Gospel of Luke, a year in First John, and 10 months in First Peter. So as you can see, we work through the scriptures quite expediently. Um, next week, we're going to start our next book. And I know many of you have been wondering, I've gotten many texts and emails like, what are we studying next? What, where are we headed? Well, we're headed to a, one of my favorite books in the scripture. We're headed back to the Old Testament to a little book, Suspense, Drumroll, uh, Daniel is what we're going to be studying for. It's probably going to take us, uh, we're guessing, eight months or so, um, probably longer than that, as you all know our pace. But we're really excited about Daniel, so get ready uh, to study that. In fact, feel free to read uh, ahead if you'd like. On our website, you can see the scriptures that we'll be studying next week, verses 1 through 7. So, what are we going to do tonight? Ah, yes, that is the question. I have a rare opportunity tonight, in between two books, um, to share something specifically that is on my heart. And uh, we're going to teach the scripture, yes, but I, I get this opportunity tonight to share some vision with you, uh, to encourage us from the scriptures, and to, and to just, just to let loose a bit. Um, so we have a bit of a journey to take uh, to, to do that, and so I'm just going to ask that you uh, come along with me as we begin this, and I think, I think the potential for us to walk out of here encouraged and changed is great. How many of you guys are people watchers? Just self-admitting there's the creepers in the room, right? Uh, my wife is one of those people. Um, she's not a creeper. Not, you guys know what I'm saying. But... People watchers are interesting because, like, whether it's a ball game or the mall or the airport or wherever, you, you just, like, you can see them because you're talking to them in a big crowd and they're, they're not listening because they're just literally watching the people go by. So there's, there's, there's people that are people watchers. They just, they love that. There's another category of people which I land in, and some of you as well do. Uh, it's, it's culture watchers. Uh, I coined that term uh, just earlier today, so work with me. But there's some people that watch people and then there's some people that study culture. Um, I happen to be one of those people. Culture is very intriguing to me. Uh, I'm the kind of guy that sits back in my chair. Uh, I rarely sit, by the way, but that sits, sits back every once in a while and just, and just examines cultural trends, cultural shifts. Where is the culture being enticed? Where are they struggling? Where are they growing? All these kinds of things. And I've been struck by something recently that has been affirmed of a previous examination, and that's this. Our culture is obsessed with the pursuit of what is authentic. Our culture is absolutely obsessed with the pursuit of something that's real, authentic, genuine, 
Um, it's like this. Some of you have met a person before that was blunt or forthright. And, and what did you say about them, right? Like when you were t- talking about them to others, you would say what? And I love, that, that person is so refreshing. Why? Because they're what? What would we say? They're, they're real, right? Our obsession is seen in the fact that uh, a lot of you don't like Aldi's, okay? Uh, let's just be honest. You're not buying fr- fruity chebbles or cheery schmoes, right? Or all these, you know, you're not buying the Mountain Dew version, the Aldi, what is it? Mountain Lightning, I know, is the Sam's, right? Like, you, you don't like the fake stuff, right? Like, you, you just, you want the real thing. So you want the Cheerios, the fruity pebbles. Our culture ultimately really doesn't like a whole lot of Aldi's. I've seen crazy people do anything for a Starbucks, right? Are, are, are some of you that way? Any Starbucks fans here, right? So a, a hotel coffee, uh, whatever it is, like they're not satisfied with just this pack of, you know, even Wolfgang Puck, right? No, like that won't do. It has to be the Bucks. Our culture is absolutely obsessed with what's real and genuine and authentic. I have a problem, though. I see a, a big cultural paradox The paradox is this. Our culture longs for what's real, authentic, and genuine, yet they so easily settle for what's not. It's like the thing that they long for the most, they settle for the quickest. That's less than that. Do do you see what I'm saying? A few examples. Um, Reality television. um, Nine out of the top 20 shows in 2009 and 2010 were reality TV. As real as most of those shows are, let me share something with you. Um, I don't know how many, and I've made several digs at this. Uh, the Bachelor or the Bachelorette, just so you know, is not a real portrayal of dating, okay? Normally in dating, you don't get to kiss 20 different people, and somehow they all, like, are cool with that, and, the, and you know, and then in the end you just pick your favorite. Like, that's not, that's not normally how the dating uh, s- scenario works. Um, and I know, I, know, I know Laguna Beach and the Hills and Jersey Shore. I know those shows are so real. But let me encourage, like, like we're settling for what's less. It's um, really, really seen in pornography. Um, every second of every day in America, there are 30,000 viewers of pornography every second. Every 39 minutes, there's a new film being made. Our culture says that they want real and authentic and genuine, and yet, and yet they're striving after for and longing after fantasy. Uh, the interesting stat out of that is uh, a study done by divorce lawyers says this, that 54% of divorces that they studied ended because one of the, or the other were, was addicted to pornography. And so, and so then they took this fantasy to the marriage, and they're like, this, this can never be this way. And so they, they leave. Um, lastly, uh, our culture longs for what's real, but they settle for, for gossip. We have this weird, strange affinity for knowing where everyone is at all the time. It's seen in social networking and all the mediums that we have right now. If I can just, if I can just find out a piece of you or about you, right? And so oftentimes you'll hear a, a story about someone. Oh, did you hear so-and-so uh, did this? Oh, no, I didn't. Interesting. Well, where'd you hear that? Oh, well, I, I heard it from a, a friend of theirs. Oh, cool. And where'd they hear it? Oh, they saw it on the third comment on their Facebook homepage, right? So like, it's like fourth, fifth, and sixth source. 
and yet strangely we're drawn to it. Strangely, our culture is feeding off of fantasy. You've heard our culture say, just, just, give us what's, just give us what's real. I want nothing fake. I want it to be genuine. And yet they're settling the quickest for things that are fantasy. Are you with me, friends? Now, culture is ultimately made up of people, individuals. And so we have to understand why this is happening. Why is culture settling for something less than real? It's because culture is made up of people. I'll put up my stick man here, please. This is a stick man. Uh, we'll, we'll call it uniperson, okay? So that it's appropriate for both men and women here. Um, culture is all born into a particular kind of being. So pre-Jesus, we're going to look at three facets of our person. Again, pre-Jesus. The first piece of you is this, is your identity. Now, um, people ask me in preparation for this, like, why aren't you putting an adjective in front of that? And I'm not even sure that would be the right word, but like true or real, like oftentimes we would see your true self, your true identity. There's no other way to say it. Each of us has an identity. All of our baggage, all of our failures, all of our victories, all of our gifts, all of these things that make up how each you and I are is our identity. The interesting thing about the fall, in other words, when Adam and Eve sinned, Romans 5 says that because Adam sinned, it makes all of us sinners, is that each, each of us, you have different pieces of your fallen nature that you struggle with different from me. And that's what makes us individuals. That's what gives us our own identity. Is before Christ, we all have these individual things that we struggle with. Savvy? All right? Now, the second piece of our being is this, convinced identity. In other words, this is who I am. All my baggage, all my struggles, all, every piece of me. But I've convinced myself that I'm something else. I, I would venture to say that every person has a convinced identity. Here's who I really am at the core, the core of me. And then on top of that is all of these ways that I've taken this and convinced myself, bad or good, about who I am. You can see this in your own life. The moments when you're sitting in your room all by yourself and you're wrestling, who really am I? And you take a thought or a comment and all of a sudden it balloons and you become something that you're ultimately not at all. Last is this, perceived identity. Here's who I really am. Here's who I've convinced myself that I am, and perceived identity is here's how I've convinced others who I am. Now, can we agree with this? You look at that, and we wonder why culture is settling for less than real. Why they'll watch a reality TV show and instantly think that this thing is like the, like the best way to live. We have no idea who we are. Our culture longs for real, authentic, true, not fake. And yet, in and of themselves, is this completely fake portrayal of life. And so when culture then is made up of all of these individuals that are all struggling with who they are or who they're not, 
then why wouldn't 39,000 or however many it is per second watch a fantasy portrayal of sexuality? They're settling because they know not who they are. Now, scripturally, there's this interesting thing that happens. Check this out. Paul, uh, he's a um, huge missionary in the New Testament. He has a radical transformation. He goes from killing Christians to being one of the most outspoken. And he comes into this area of the world called Athens. Can everyone say Athens with me? Now, it's said of the ancient Greek writers that Athens, listen, had more gods than people. That was the understanding of Athens. Athens has more gods than the people living in it. Paul comes into an area of the world that has no idea who they are. He comes in, and we're going to see it, he comes into an area of the world that say that they long for real, authentic, true, and yet they're settling for something that they have no idea what it is. Are you ready to check this out? And we're going to keep journeying and push through to the end. So open your Bibles to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, the page number for your pew Bible is on the screen. Again, amazing to have you here. So excited to uh, get the opportunity to teach this passage with you. When you're, there, when you're there, say I'm there, please. What a resounding cry. Verse 22 says this. Here we go. Or, or rather, let's start in verse 16. Uh, so while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, who's he waiting on? He's waiting on Silas and Timothy. And so it, it's this cool portrayal. He, he's in limbo. He's waiting on a couple other boys to meet him up. And it says while he was waiting at them, look, his spirit was provoked within him. As he saw that the city was what? Full of what? Idols. So Paul comes in, does some cultural reconnaissance. And many of you, again, you're a cultural study person. You, you enjoy sitting back and seeing the trends. Paul is waiting in Athens, and he steps back, and he's like, okay, like, it doesn't take a rocket science to see this, but this city is filled with idolatry. Like, this city doesn't know what they're worshiping, what they're doing, and what does the scripture say? His what is provoked? His what? His spirit, there's an angst. This is the same angst that you and I should have as followers of Jesus, for those in this room that are. As we sit back and do cultural reconnaissance, there's an angst that comes, there's a provoking in our spirit. This culture is filled with idolatry. It is easy to see, it's plain to see. Filled with idolatry. Look at what happens here. Incredible. So, verse 17. He reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. I love this. He's not concerned. And, and, you know, we're all about building relationships and love first at Matthias. Trust me. But I, I got to love the picture of Paul here. He's like, hey, how you doing? Great. Uh, my name is Paul. Have, have you noticed your city is filled with idolatry, right? Like he, he doesn't go into this long litany of things. He's just reasoning with the philosophers of the day, verse 18. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. Quick note about these folks. The Epicureans believed this, that pleasure was the best end of life. So Greek culture, I call it theos chaos, God's everywhere, and the Epicureans are there too. And they believe that pleasure is the best end to all of life. And then you have the Stoics there as well. The name says enough, right? Like Mount Rushmore, Party of Three, right? Like, like the Stoics are, are philosophers. They're wise. It's all intellectual. The Epicureans and the Stoics say this. 
What does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seemed to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching what? Jesus and the what? All right, check this out. The early movement of Christ, listen, so key. The early movement of Christ were walking all around the land with one message. Jesus has resurrected. Over and over and over in Acts, that's the message, that's the teaching. Jesus has resurrected from the dead. Why is that so critical? If not, he's a teacher in a tomb, you see? And so the message of Jesus has resurrected in this foreign pagan land, Paul, by his words and by his deeds, is legitimizing the resurrection of Jesus. Do you see? I don't just say that Christ is resurrected, but I'm here battling you all, though there's death threats against my life, saying Jesus has resurrected. What has happened to that message? How did the resurrection of Christ, the power over the grave, the fact that you and I can have life because Jesus killed and conquered death, what has happened to that message? Why, why has it gotten all construed in all kinds of other ideologies? What has happened to the simplistic, Christ is risen, he's risen indeed? What happened to that message? I would venture to say that in our own identity, like, there's this massive confusion about what you and I even really believe. But Paul is certain Jesus has resurrected. Now this conversation gets crazy. Check this out. Verse 19. And they took hold of him, <laughs> um, which, again, I don't think this is like a love tap, right? Like, th- this, this is like an interesting way of phrasing it. They take hold of him, they grab him, and it's like, okay, like we need to move on. And where do they take him? Look at this. And they, and they brought him to the Areopagus, which is, um, check this out, an ancient Athenian court. One of the most ancient Greek courts. It wasn't a place where people got tried. In other words, you would have a murderer. But those kind of folks wouldn't get tried at the Areopagus. At the the Areopagus, rather. It was folks who were dealing with new philosophies and teachings that were taken there. Look at this. May we know what his new teaching is that you are presenting. Verse 20. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know them, therefore, uh, we wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. You're talking all this crazy talk about Jesus and the resurrection, and what do they say? Like, you're local, man. Like, this strange, strange teachings to our ears. Again, what's happened to that message? We've watered down the gospel so much in our culture that it's really not strange to the culture's ears. I would venture to say to you that if we really started to embrace the true measure of the grace and gospel of Jesus, that it would be strange to the culture's ears. But it's, it's not. We've somehow found a way as the church to fit in exactly how the culture is. And once in a while, we say, Jesus loves you. And they're like, yeah, I read that on a bumper sticker. But, but when you start saying, no, you don't understand. Uh, the, Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus, God of my life, has resurrected. Then all of a sudden you start to rub some folks the wrong way. Because now he's not a teacher. Now he's a king, you see. And whenever you start claiming the kingship of Jesus, oh, hello. Now all of a sudden culture is disconnected with the message. So that's what he's doing. He's not backing down. He didn't come in and say, hey, Athenians, like I know you... Like, you got some messed up things here, but Jesus loves you. No. This city is filled with idolatry. King Jesus has resurrected. He's resurrected indeed. You see the difference. Now, look at this. We're just getting going. Verse 21. 
Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except what? Telling or hearing something new. Ring a bell? This is our culture. This is exactly our culture. Again, right here. They say they long for real and authentic, and they'll do anything to get it, just like these folks. They would just sit around, like, tell me something new. Show me a new TV show. And, like, lure me in to some new enticing methodology. Like, I just, I love that. You know about yourself. You love just new stuff. Like, the idea of new, like, even whatever. I heard, I I did a little study on Einstein and Jesus this past week. Probably, I don't have time to go into it now. Oh, maybe I do. One quote. Um, Einstein said this. He said, God, or rather, he said, it's a fool who doesn't believe that there's a cosmic being but you certainly cannot know him, is what Einstein said. So again, for me, like, that was a fresh quote. I was like, okay, interesting. Einstein, you're a heretic. But let me tell you something. Like, it, 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 reveals, it reveals where our culture is at, right? E equals MC to the third or whatever it is, right? Now, squared, thank you. Verse 22. Look at this. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens... I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Look at this. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription. What? To the what? Unknown God. All right, hang with me here. Check this out. So Paul is doing cultural reconnaissance, and he's walking around. He's like, that's interesting. There's an insane amount of altars over here. And then he walks over here, and he's like, there are this city is just filled with altars. There's altars every, altars here, altars there. And then he comes upon one altar and he walks up to it and on its inscription it says, to the unknown God. Now, an ancient historian says this. 600 years before this moment, guess what happened? There was a plague, a, a, a huge a famine in the land. And the the, the huge philosopher of the day said this. Here's how we're going to rid of this plague, of this famine. We're going to send a bunch of sheep into the city of Athens, black and white sheep. And wherever these sheep land, wherever they, like a building that they get tired and they lay down, then we're going to sacrifice that sheep there. And that sheep is going to be sacrificed to appease the God of that particular area. Again, there's gods, out, there's gods for everything in Greek culture. So here's what they did. They sent out the sheep right? And so all these sheep are landing in all these different places, and they would lay down. Bad move. Off with your head. You know what I'm saying? And, and then the sheep over here would, you know, and you're no dice too. And so they killed all these sheep until one landed in an area where there was no God represented, which is really hard to do in Greek culture, right? Like, I don't know what it looked like or where it must have been, it's on some dusty dirt road in the middle of no, you know. But anyway, this sheep lands there. And they're like, well, what do we do? Okay, okay. I, I guess we're just going to build an altar to an unknown God. Let's just make another one up. And then we'll just throw a weird name on it. This God we don't even know. Sacrifice. Done. They're in such an identity crisis in Athens They're worshiping gods they're not even naming. And they're perfectly fine with that. They're like, this God, we're just not even going to give him a name. We're going to worship him anyway. That's a great idea. I mean, this culture so represents us. And Paul says, I've noticed 
that you're worshiping some unknown gods. Now look at this. Amazing, amazing, amazing. I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Look at this. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. What is Paul's contention? You're worshiping all these gods, trying to appease them with a sacrifice, as if God needed anything from you. Let me tell you something. The God that you call unknown, he can be known. Paul takes this altar, this idolatry of the culture, and he completely flips it on his head. You say that there's a God that you don't know? Let me tell you about him. You act as if that, um, that you need to, like, appease God. With, no. God doesn't need you to be God. And that's why Paul said, I know that you're very religious. Here's what religion does, friends. It says that God needs us to appease him for him to be somehow God. One of the greatest realizations in my ministry is when I realize that God does not need me to preach one sermon. He chooses in his grace to use me, but he needs me not. The gospel being preached and proclaimed is not dependent on you and I's shoulders. We get the opportunity to be the light to the world, but he doesn't need us. He does not need us. And religion says, no, God needs us. God, God, he desires us, yes, church, but he does not need us. He goes on with this amazing sermon, verse 26. And he made from one man every nation of mankind, he's talking about Adam here, to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries for their dwelling place, that they should, what? Seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Kind of strange, you picture playing hide-and-go-seek, like feeling your way around their walls. God, right? It's kind of this weird portrayal. All he is saying is, what you think is unknown is you can know. What you've been floundering around, saying, oh, we want what's real. Teach us new philosophy. Your search can end. What a truth from the Scripture that our search, that culture's desire for what's real and not fake and authentic and genuine, that that search can end with God. Now, there is a problem. There's a problem. Put, put my identity um, man back up, the final slide there for me. The final slide, thank you. I just like looking at him. Such a brilliant little stick man, right? Now, the problem is, like Paul, the church is to now be the proclaimer that the resurrection of Christ happened. We are called to be the legitimizers in this culture, not just by word, but by deed, that Jesus really is resurrected. How does that happen? It happens with this. With followers of Jesus who understand their new identity. Scripture says that we're in Christ, a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. So who I once was, 
fallen, depraved, sinful, grotesque. Now I'm a new creation. The problem is, culture isn't having to pause because the church is not legitimizing the resurrection of Christ. Because we flounder around just the same as culture. We don't claim victory in the fact that we're new creations. We still are trying to convince ourselves that that's not good enough. That to be called a child, a son of God, to be known by him is not enough. And what Paul says is seek that God and he can be known. So the church deals with the same identity crisis as culture. And then we've got a whole bunch of people that are searching for what's real, true, genuine, and authentic. And that search could end at God if the church would embrace their call to be revealers that the resurrection is true. Are we together? Now look at this, look at this. This goes on, and we'll, we'll end uh, this passage with this. Verse, to, uh, verse 28, and let's start back in verse 27. That they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. Verse 28, and he uses some language of the day here. In him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. So he uses some of the philosophy of the day to speak to it. Look at this, verse 29. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art or imagination of man. He's like, look, you're all worshiping like all these, all these idols and idolatry. It's nonsense. It's foolishness. Why aren't we taking the issues that culture is dealing with and teaching them the power of Christ through them. I had a conversation the other day with someone who is absolutely addicted to pornography in every way, shape, form. And we got into this, this discussion towards the end. I was just like, I was like, look, look. Do you understand that you're feeding your mind and your heart with something that demeans both men and women and the picture of biblical sexuality and that it gives you this under, this fake false sense of reality when all of that could completely end at God. And he just sat and he, I could, and, you know, a lot of shame, but for the first time in this long relationship I've had with this brother, there was a sense of hope. Gold, silver, God cannot be contained. What is it for you, huh? Where's your idolatry? Where has your identity crisis in your own self, the convinced identity that you've made yourself believe that you are, and the per perception that you're trying to put off to everyone else, where is that for you? Paul says that God can be known. Look at this. Verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to what? To repent. Turn from this idolatry. Turn from this wretched way of living and turn towards Christ. Repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Another confirmation of the resurrection of Jesus. So, let's pause here. Can we take a minute? What are we going to do? There's a massive issue, disconnect. Culture longs and wants for what's real. And the church in our own way, 
isn't legitimizing the resurrection of Christ because we ourselves find each other in that same stretch of thinking. We'll have an opportunity to take the last few minutes here and share with you what this church desires. Uh, You're all here from many different backgrounds, many different vantage points, and um, many of you are here for the first time, not knowing at all what this church is about. Um, I want to take a few minutes and tell you our heart for taking this message of the resurrection of Christ into a culture. Are, Are we cool? Two things. First is this. We believe that to flesh out this identity crisis that we struggle with, that to take out the perception that you can't struggle in church. That's what I grew up with. That's what I saw. I grew up with the picture that if any one of you stood up right now and said, you know what, I'm struggling. I'm struggling with pornography. I'm struggling with whatever it is that you would stand up and raise your hand and everyone else would instantly like bow and arrow your face. You know what I'm saying? Because like, oh, well, you're not like any of the rest of us. Like you need to get out of the, you need to get out of the doors because this, this church is perfect. Like look, we're all smiling, right? The fake teasy, you know what? Like look at us. We have everything together. Everything is in a row. I grew up thinking that the church was made up of perfect people. And then I started to see people's reality, their true sense of identity. And I learned really quick that that wasn't the case. So, we value here the opportunity to people, for people to be vulnerable. Well, how does that happen? It can't happen in this setting. As fun as that would be, right? Like someone right now just raises their hand and then we like all go around. We would be here till three, right? And that's just for this section, you know? We, we, need, we need a smaller opportunity to wrestle with how we're going to legitimize in the way that God's called us, the resurrection of Jesus. Our words don't legitimize it because he's resurrected, but he's called us to be a means, to be the message of it. We need a smaller venue. And so for us, we, um, we have these things called lot families. And I bring this up now just to share the value of it. Um, small groups right now is a very like catchy thing, right? Small groups this, small groups that. For us, we meet on Wednesday here, which is strange in and of itself, right? Like this isn't a youth group or a college ministry or an extension of something else. This is a church. We just happen to meet on Wednesday night. Reason being, Sunday for me growing up was the busiest day of the week. Anybody else? I mean, I grew up in the church, and Sunday for me, I would wake up, I would go to Sunday school in my fluorescent pants and pink tie. Mom, you know, like this weird out like Easter, you know, whatever. And I would go to church, and then I would come home and shower, and then I would go to work at Ponda Grossa. Any Pondo fans? Amen. I always talk about the cheese. Okay. And um, I would go to Ponderosa, and I would come home, and I would shower again. Then I would go to youth choir, which was called Impact, really catchy. And then I would, then I would go to youth group. And I would come home at like 9 o'clock at night from all of this, and my parents would slap me on the butt figuratively and, and call me a holy child. I was coupling busyness and holiness The more that I did, the better I was. The more things that I participated in with the church, then God somehow looked at me and said, well done, and was like giving me some God high five or something. Here at this church, we are trying to break the connection of busyness and holiness. You are not made holy, seen as righteous, 
seen as good because of your deeds, church. You are seen as that through the lens of God only because of Christ and his sacrifice, period. And so for us, on Sunday, we cease. We pause. It's not the busiest day of the week. For me and my family, my three kids wake up often way too early, right? I hear Dawson in the monitor about 6.30 on Sundays. I'm like, awesome, you know? So I go and get them up, and all of us, all five of us right there in our queen-size bed, laughing, and Dawson's doing his Dawson thing. You need to meet my son. He's a wild man. And, And then we go downstairs, and we eat breakfast together. And then we turn on worship music downstairs. And my daughter especially knows that on Sundays, it's completely different than the rest of the week. And then guess what? At 10.30, um, as my daughter would say, the church comes over. When I was growing up, I went to church. And now my daughter understands that the church is the people and the church comes over to our house. Incredible. So the small group comes over. And in now seven homes all throughout this city, in this county, small groups meet for the purpose of ceasing and celebrating Jesus for the purpose of sitting across from each other and looking one another in the eye and saying, you know what, like, I'm struggling and I need prayer and encouragement because I've convinced myself of my identity and I realize that it's not my true self. And so we just, we meet and we get in the scriptures and we celebrate and we worship. It's a beautiful portrayal of what community could be. So for us, that's an expression. We want to gather in smaller community so that we can be more equipped to, in our culture, be the message of the resurrected Christ. Amen? Now, if we just gather like that, and there's not a plan of implementation, then then we just become a Christian club, clique. We just become Christians who gather and make each other feel good with encouragement. No. Ten months ago, we realized this, that we live in a city called St. Charles. Any St. Charles fans here? better be way more than that. We realize that, that we're here in the city and we realize that, that we have a couple options. We can have a brick building, which let me pause here and say this. For those of you that haven't heard, um, the close date is done. We are moving to Main Street St. Charles. In around Christmas time, all of us will be meeting down across from Picasso's. Pretty incredible for our worship place. We're really excited about that, right? So, so we can either move in a place like this, put a big 20 by 40 foot banner on the side and hope that the city comes. Or we can move down to Main Street, right amidst culture, and just hope that the city comes. I don't think that's a good plan. That's what I grew up thinking, though. This is the only plan. You throw an amazing worship band up there, some cool candles and lights, right? And, and pretty soon, like, people will come. And then you'll get the opportunity to tell people about the residents. I don't think that's a good plan. I don't think that's a good plan. So for us, we sat back and we're like, so what does it look like to completely love and engage a city? And so for us, we started this thing called We Love St. Charles. Catchy title, eh? Right? What we do is this. We've gone into the city meeting f- new friends of ours now over 250 families that we've interacted with in the last 10 months. And we've had the opportunity to do this, to share the resurrection of Christ by living love. Coming in with no agenda, with no 
written piece of what it looks like coming into each situation and scenario, mostly single moms, over 100 single moms we've interacted with, and many of which you have had opportunities to sit with folks in their hurt and in their pain, and you've had the chance to talk about why you have hope. Friends, listen. Our desire here at Matthias is to not be a church that builds a building and that people look to and says, oh, there, that's, those, are, those are the Matthias Bahubis, like we can't even pronounce the name, right? Like, those, those are the, no. We desire to be known in this city as a church that engages it, that loves it, and that serves it in every way possible. I'll quote uh, the leader of community development. Her name's Anita Telkamp, and she says this about us in an email that she was writing to someone else. She copied me on it. She said, these people are some of the most genuine, loving people in the city. We have an opportunity here in this church, in this community, to change an understanding about identity. First in small groups, you can be vulnerable, you can be real, you can be genuine, you can wrestle with the real, known God in such a way that your brothers and sisters sitting around this room will grab you by the arm, not coddle you, not to say, oh, it's going to be okay, but together unite and push towards the cross. And then as a church community, we get the opportunity to express that to express the resurrection of Christ. This past Saturday, we rehabbed an entire building with 55 of you that basically it's an organization that helps um, moms and, and husbands who have lost children in pregnancy. And so we just got to express love to these folks and encourage them. And at the end, this woman comes up to me and she says, we've never seen anything. We get this opportunity, church. Now you're like, well, why are you sharing this? Because this is our vision. And you're here with us tonight. I am not trying to sell you anything or persuade you to sign up for this vision. All I'm saying is, there's some of you here that you're just floundering around. You go to nine different churches, ten different ministries. My encouragement is this. It's time to seek out where you're called. And it may very well not be here. This may not be the place that you're called to serve and grow and love as we embrace the call to change this understanding in the culture that truth can't be known. Maybe this isn't your place, but maybe it is. Don't mistake my passion as trying to sell you on something because I'm not. I just believe God's called us to this. And listen, I really believe, as we've already seen, that this city and this campus is never, ever going to be the same. I believe that. With how God is using you. Not me as the pastor, but you. And so, some of you, it's time. Some of you, it's time. You've been in and out. You've, you've come and you've seen and you've heard. But you've been, very, you've been very uncommittal. Fearful of that. Right? It's time that you discern. Not just Matthias, but Where? It's easy to go to a ministry and hear teaching and give each other a high five. It's way more difficult to look people in the eye and say, I want to serve with you. And some of you tonight need to do that. Not just here, anywhere. Anywhere that's preaching the scriptures, that holds true the gospel, and that is seeking out how to love the city. That's where you need to go. 
I just share all these things as we seek out to better love and equip the city. It's time that the troops are rallied. So we have an opportunity for you tonight. Some of you, you've may never, you maybe have never even been to a lot family. Some of you, if, if you're interested, tonight as we're responding, there's a table over here with a bunch of sign-up sheets. We're just like, you know what? I'm interested. I would love to see what that looked like. Sign up over there. We'll get in touch with you. We'll give you an opportunity to connect and see how it, it, how it does look. And it's through those La families that we serve and we love St. Charles. So it's really easy to get connected to this church through La families. But no matter where it is that you're called, here or elsewhere, is your identity in Christ, for those of you that are believers in here, is it enough for you? Is being called a child of God enough? Or are you still trying to convince yourself that there's more to be had? We need to come at this culture that is seeking after authenticity with the message of the resurrection of Christ, the only true, authentic, real message there is. Everything else will pass away but the word of the Lord lasts forever. That's our call. And the opportunity to do that, the grace enough to do that, is because of the sacrifice of Jesus. That one night with his disciples took the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body which is broken for you. Take and eat and do this in remembrance of me. In remembrance of me is, is in the resurrection of me as Christ. So look at my sacrifice and know that you can follow this calling because of that. And then he took the cup and he said, this cup represents the blood of the new, of the new covenant, the new promise, the new contract, that now you can be united in relationship with the one true living God because of my sacrifice. And so there's those of you here that have You've never started a relationship with Jesus. And so can I share with you, lastly here, I believe that Christ is alive, that he resurrected from the dead. And the reason I believe that is because I am a completely wretched punk. But somehow he's given me a new identity. And this morning when I woke up and I was reading his scripture, I realized again that that God loves me and is changing me and is breathing life into my soul. That God, Paul says, can be known. So seek him out. This meal is for believers, for those that claim Christ is real. And as we turn now to a time response, I invite you after repenting turning from your sin, confessing your sin to God, that you would embrace your identity in Christ, seek out where he's called you to serve, and if it's here, then there's an opportunity for you to say, you know what, it's time. It's time. So I'm going to pray for us, and I'm praying that God will build his church, not Matthias. I'm not interested in building a Mecca here. I just want us to do our part, our little part, Matthias's lot, in this city for the glory of God. Let's pray.
God, we want to see the city flipped upside down with the message of your resurrection. We want to see you lifted high and glorified. We want to see your name be exalted. We want to see your resurrection be proclaimed. We want to see the city and the mayor and all those who are in it come to a better understanding of you. So God, would you solidify, would you solidify our identity in you? There were new creations saved by grace through faith that we can proclaim this true, real, authentic message to a culture that's looking for it. Could you give us that confidence in you to share that you are God? We confess our fears, but God, we're longing for it. We're longing to serve. Let's repent and respond, church.